Howdy, and welcome to the Three True Outcomes Baseball Podcast presented by Baseball Prospectus. I'm your host, Ian Lefkowitz, and joining me as always from suburban Michigan, it is Ben Murphy. Ben, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How okay. are you doing, Ian? I, I'm, I'm doing wonderfully. Uh, delighted to be here, which is the same place as always. Yes. Which is in your ears, dear oh. listener. That too. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Doesn't that seem terrifying that you are literally in like somebody's ear hole right now? Um, I'm not going to think about it. Yeah, just ponder that. Oh, my God. Um, also pondering that from our nation's capital is Jared Wise. Jared, how are you doing? A little weirded out right now. That's the way I like it. Um, happy Pesach. Happy Pesach. Someone has asked me, do you say happy Pesach? I don't know what the right verbiage there. Great question. Um, is it a happy holiday? It feels mixed. Yeah. <laughs> Most are, though, if you think about it. Yeah, so, that's true. That's true. I um, yeah. I didn't celebrate any holidays this past weekend, but a lot of people wish me happy Easter, and it really bothers me that people assume that I'd be celebrating Easter. And I wanted to respond with something like, uh, you know, happy passover or whatever the like equivalent was and i realized like i didn't know what that was and then that's just like me being even worse than that because it's just like a disingenuous uh double down on the religious uh, assumptions but um <laughs> well, you know, like obviously yeah. throwing it in their face that they made a mm, mistaken assumption about me um Probably it's much better to have an actual civilized adult conversation and be like, it's probably not good to assume that everybody celebrates Easter and blah, blah, blah. But uh, the main reason I didn't was because I didn't know what the right thing to say was. So it's like, Turns out none like, of us do. It's like, <laughs> I know fasts, years. I know fasts need to be meaningful uh, and not every holiday is happy. Most holidays aren't, I guess. Yeah. Well, most, sorry, I should say most uh, most of the Jewish high holy days, right, are like not about rejoicing necessarily. They're about like reflection and things. They're all mixed, I think. Um, I, you know, again, like I am not a religious studies major either, but I've always kind of based how happy a um, Jewish holiday is based on the amount and type of food that you get to eat. So if it's a good holiday, you eat a ton. Right? And it's really like, delicious food, right? Yeah, like Hanukkah, awesome. We'll fry everything and just like stuff it on. Yeah, because if it's good, that means you eat more. It's a terrible day, you don't eat. Does that mean Christmas is one of the best Jewish holidays? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's a really sacrilegious response to that. But <laughs> I leave the listener to <laughs> draw those inferences. <laughs> <laughs> I've gotten us horribly off track. I apologize. Yeah, I don't. I don't know what the track was, but um, yeah, there's pivot to baseball. <laughs> so we are delighted to have those of you left. Right. <laughs> that might be the fastest we've ever lost listeners in the beginning of a podcast. <laughs> New record every week. Yeah. Half our listeners, one of them just turned it off. Um, <laughs> but all right, we are uh, happy to be back for another week. Um, and as always, we'd love to start our show with some uh, emails. Uh, so let's uh, let's turn it over to the mailbag captain. Uh, see what's 
what's on deck? Oh, that's actually a baseball pun. Sorry. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> I don't respond to those. Yeah. Uh, we got an email. That's very exciting. Uh, thanks, Jacob, for writing back in. Jacob is asking about his team in Public League NL340, which I can't think of a good mnemonic for that. It's three of four and a zero. I don't know. Look it up. He's uh, Team 11 and wants to know if he should start selling now. This was He wrote in before the uh, supplemental, or um, could he make some good moves in the supplements and um, be a competitive team this year? So um, I'll turn it over to you guys who have a similar. But I think the interesting thing about this question from Jacob is that um, I know for, if you guys would agree. For me personally, I don't know that a supplemental could is likely to swing a team too much. Like I wouldn't. It's hard for me to imagine too many teams that are going to be completely revamped by a supplemental picks. But Jacob's team, this one in particular, is light on depth. So to me, it's a more reasonable question. So, hey, this is an easy way to, for me to pick up depth. Depth is the one thing I'm missing. Is that going to be enough to swing the tide? Mm-hmm. Turn the tide. Ian, do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? Um, I, I think you should go first because you actually responded to him. I earlier. did actually yeah. respond to him. Uh, <laughs> my, my response was like two sentences. Um, and I basically said I think the team lacks enough depth that even if everything breaks right and you could add some depth through the supplementals, um, you're not going to be competitive enough this year to make it worth uh, trying to make that push. And it's better to pull the plug on this year and focus on strengthening the core or trading this year's supplementals for picks in next year's spring draft or something like that. Yeah. Um, so I think one of the things that's uh, interesting here is that between when Jacob wrote it and I think where the team is now, the writing is on the wall here. You know, I think sometimes you can, let's say, start the season like 10 and six or even like eight and eight. And, or, and kind of say, okay, I can dream my team to a championship, but uh, this team is now, I believe, six and sixteen. So, uh, it, the question kind of answered itself between then and now. Uh, but he does have a strong core, especially in pitching. Um, and I think what's interesting, if we take this over to the uh, <laughs> uh, the Rob McCune Memorial Taken Players Report. <laughs> Uh, which is a fascinating tool. Uh, again, a baseball prospectus uh, fantasy tool um, for all uh, subscribers. Again, highly recommended. Not an ad, just a thing. That's true. Um, you can see that in terms of like his top five keepers, he has uh, he's in the top half of the league, which I think is probably accurate you know he has Aaron Nola he has Luis Castillo um and some stars coming up so Corey Seager Victor Robles uh player and Anthony Rendon so you have players who are projected to oh JP real uh JT Realito so you have players who are really going to deliver power uh this year um and impact but the more and more you go out you just see the lack of depth get exposed. So, you know, by 13, uh, 13 keepers, still third actually in the league, but then you go to 18 and it drops to uh, second to last. So like right after the keeper line, um, 
the team tails off completely. And uh, that's actually an awesome place to be in. <laughs> I think that's the way you want to set up your uh, non-contenders um, in a continuing league is to just think like, how do I get the best core of 13 players that I can uh, for now and for the future? Um, one of the things that's interesting to me is that uh, in addition to this core of players who are providing present value, um, you do have a number of minor leaguers and a large number of minor leaguers. Um, what I would probably recommend is uh, letting go a little bit of some of the minor leaguers um, and just being very judicious about what you get back. Um, look for a bunch of consolidation trades, maybe try to trade one star player and two to three prospects for the prospect of your dreams. Um, just, you know, I, I think even be willing to take a loss on a trade just cause, you know, I think adding more minor leaguers to the situation is really not, you know, there's diminishing returns in terms of your 10th, 11th keeper. You are really sacrificing depth next year. And at some point you want to get off this treadmill, especially since you already have what's probably a pretty solid contending core. Um, so I think in the email you mentioned, like, uh, they can't let go of Tony Gonsolin, which is fine. I mean, you know, I have dumb keepers on all of our teams as well. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, and I'm not even saying that's a dumb keeper. I, I think it's fine. Just, you know, as the 11th or 12th keeper on a team, you're really cutting into what else you can do and your flexibility, both in season in getting more minor league players and uh, after the season, you know, keeping them. I, I think it's not just, you know, the opportunity cost because the 26th round pick is not really anything. It's just... You know, you basically you make it much harder for your team to win a championship if you're only keeping 24, 25 players. Yeah, depth will be a recurring issue in that case. So, are there um, are there specific minor leaguers in his league that you think he should be targeting? Ian, um, targeting. I di- I didn't look closely. Okay, to be perfectly honest, but. Um, you know, I think you probably know the players you like. I would look for uh, players on contending teams. Um, you know, maybe look for players who dropped out of it this year if anyone gets hurt for the rest of the year and is a, you know, as a regular. Um, you know, we've definitely done the Lance McCullers gambit in a bunch of leagues, but as players like that pile up in your NL league, you know, take a look, I would say, as well. Um, you know, because I don't think this you, this team is going to be bad this year, but I don't think it's far from contention, and we have a couple teams like that. So, you know, that's um, <laughs> that is the advantage of a continuing league. It's very hard in one year league, and I think uh, we'll talk about that in a second too, because um, I think we have some more thoughts on this kind of topic. But uh, that's all I have on this. Uh, Jared, anything to add? No, I think it's good. I, mean, I still think it's better than than you guys think it is. But it's not that it's not a good team. It's that yeah. this isn't the year, right? The way that it's currently constituted, like the stuff that he got out of the spring draft, isn't. It's not enough. And and even if he had 
uh, a great outlook on things. He's already last in the division. He's already behind by uh, 10 games. You know, it's like he'd have to have more depth playing better and outplaying those other teams by enough that it doesn't make sense to me to try to win this year when, as Ian was saying, it's in a great position to try to contend for next year because the core is really good, the keepers are pretty solid, and uh, if you take the opportunity now, you can really build something that'll be pretty solid next year and I think show pretty well, um, like make the playoffs, maybe not win anything like championship, but uh, it would be a huge missed opportunity to try to go for this year and spoil the good position that he's in to be really good next year, I think. That's fair. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because because so much of the talent is uh, in the starting pitching, There, there's also kind of a time limit the other way. So, you know, either consider maybe trading out your starting pitchers for uh, fixing up holes in your... Uh, lineup, maybe an outfielder. You, again, even if you're losing trades that way, um, just things that things that you can take into 2020 and be confident in by the end of the year. Um, so, all right. I think this is uh, one of the reasons that score sheet is kind of fun, though, because this is a line a team that, in say a standard roto league, could be fairly competitive right now. I think, but right. score sheet is all about the depth, which is a fun twist for those of us who like that sort of thing. Right. A team that's struggling primarily because the 18th through 35th positions on the roster are weak. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is <laughs> the thing, the thing that separates score sheet from fantasy is just trolling those like relief pitching depth charts. Like, <laughs> looking, looking for the setup men who are out of options in the middle of March. Maybe on a beach somewhere. Who knows? <laughs> it's a thing that says, I have made a choice with my life. <laughs> and I'm going to see it through. <laughs> That's all the questions we had. Score sheet at Baseball Prospectus. Ian, do you think there are other people that are in a similar position, say three or four weeks into the season, trying to figure out what to do about their team that's not performing well? Wow. That is quite a segue. Whoa. Um, what, sh- what should they do? I think, I think I got some good advice in my inbox this week from Jeff Barton. He says it's time to panic. Yeah, so we, we all, uh, us and you, the listener, got an email this week uh, from the Bartons that uh, kind of got pinned on their topic board. Uh, so I will, <laughs> I, I guess at some level, this is a mailbag captain. Uh, so I don't know, Jared, if you want to read it, but I, I do have it in front of me. If you, if you go, go ahead, because okay. this wasn't sent to, to me. Okay. That's fair. Uh, thank you for, uh, making me associate captain. Anyway. Hi all. As far as performance of players who are still healthy, I generally do not worry too much. If one of my players has a slow start the first week or so. But if after 20 games, a guy is still performing poorly, then I start to think it might be time for that player to ride some pine, especially if he's getting up there in age. Of course, that doesn't always work out well either. We know the sinking feeling of benching a guy just before he gets hot. Decisions such as when to start a guy who's been hot or to bench a guy, uh, 
even if he was one of your higher draft picks or what makes this playing playing this game fun, eh? And air quotes around fun just for uh, verisimilitude. <laughs> Overall, though, while I always preach patience the first week or two, the th- at the three-week mark, I think drastic changes are often called for. Best of luck in your decision-making. Um, ben, do you think this is good advice? <laughs> Man, that's a setup. Uh, no, but I think... So it's an interesting... It's interesting to contrast the email with Jacob's team because I don't think my answer about Jacob's team changes a whole lot now than it would have before the season started, like based on the depth that he has, right? Like he came into the season with two relievers and, you know, uh, only one catcher, really, only one first baseman, uh, only, you know, like two or three middle infielders. So he was going to have a tough go over the long haul of the full six month season because depth is so important in score sheet, like you guys are saying. And, and I think there's a big difference between changing your evaluation of the team between the start of the season and now, which is what Jeff Barton is talking about and being realistic with yourself when you're taking stock of your team, which is what I was hoping to do for Jacob. Um, And so I think like Jeff's advice is not something I would agree with. I think, we're definitely too early in the season to change, you know, in the big picture sense, like your evaluation of whether you thought your team was going to be competitive or not. And I think it's really too bad that Jeff's email isn't um, more careful about describing like the ways that you might be able to tell whether the performance that you've seen in the win loss column is indicative of, uh, the talent on the team and what you should expect going forward. Right? And we've talked about this a little mm-hmm. bit before, but you know, you can even dig into just on a very cursory level for your score sheet team. Like have they been, you know, quote unquote lucky or unlucky in terms of sequencing in terms of like the runs they've scored and allowed, how closely does their Pythagorean win percentage, um, like how close is that to their actual, you know, like one loss for the score sheet team. But then you can also look at, comparing the players' score sheet performance to their real-life performance, uh, and something like Team Tracker on Baseball Prospectus' site can be really helpful for that, too, where you can sort of look at real-life performance season to date and compare it to the sim performance season to date and say, like, well, do I have some uh, luck balancing or other, like, bounce-back stuff that might be coming my way down the road? And, And I think if you have seen something notable in the beginning of the season, like like Jeff mentioned, like an injury or something like that. Yeah, yeah, that's maybe a reason to change your outlook, but barring something major like that, I think it's it's way too early and I think um I think a lot of people are probably savvy enough to see that. Uh and so it's a little mm-hmm. bit I don't know, it's interesting to me that Jeff would give that advice in that email newsletter that you can't opt out of if you want to. <laughs> All right. <laughs> We're learning a lot of best practices today in a lot of different fields. Um, Jared, any any thoughts? So Ben, when is the time you would start making drastic changes? Oh, that's a good weeks? question. Um, I guess maybe a third of the way into the season is when I would like take stock of it and think about changing course you know one of the things too is even if you wait until a third of the way to the season which is like 
two months. So that's, you know, what, end of May, something like that. Uh, you're still going to have plenty of time to make any trades or change your approach for your supplemental picks. And I think way too often we have this emotional reaction to our team, like, oh, they stink. Like, these guys are the suckiest bunch of sucks that ever sucked. Like, I'm getting rid of them. But <laughs> Stop uh, reading our comments. But I, you have I, to, I, <laughs> uh, but you have to, like, you have to... Like, take that emotional reaction, set it aside, try to be a little bit rational about it, and be like, okay, like, what's actually changed in terms of, like, preseason projections or what I was expecting this team to do? And and I guess maybe people just feel like that itch, like, I have to do something, but you you don't. And, yeah, I would wait at least two months. And even if you waited, like, another month or two after that, you're getting an extra, like, two weeks after the major league baseball trade deadline going into August to make trades in score sheet. Um, you know, it's like there's a lot of time left to try to move the players that are going to be helpful to contenders. And because the September performances weighted so heavily in score sheet in the playoffs, those playoff contenders are going to be super interested in those players that you have that are, um, you know, closer to the one hit wonder side of the value spectrum in terms of, you know, going to be good this year, maybe next, but not really great in the long run, that a team that wants to rebuild for the future would be happy to deal to a playoff contender. Uh, and and a lot of times the playoff contender is going to be more interested in August because they're going to have more cost certainty around what they're getting. Right now, people are like, I don't know if that hot start is for real or not, and you're probably not going to get great value for the guy that you have that you'd like to trade because you want to punt on the season because the team's playing terribly. Um, there's all kinds of great reasons to wait. And I think, yeah, I would wait at least two months, um, even three or four. I think you're, as long as you're giving yourself a couple of weeks before the trade deadline, you'll be fine. So to, to give Jeff the benefit of the doubt here or to play mm-hmm. devil's advocate, maybe, is it possible that what he means by drastic changes is not blow up your team? Because like early in the paragraph, he's talking about a, benching a guy who is not hitting that well. So is so? Do you think by drastic changes, it's possible he's meaning you know rejigger your lineup or you know put someone on the bench and bring someone in as opposed to deciding oh my team is not going to compete this year? So by drastic changes, you mean the opposite of drastic changes? <laughs> well, the thing is that like in score sheet, there's not that many ways because right. without a waiver wire, there's not many ways you can change your team. Right, so, there aren't a ton of levers in score sheet. Right, so um, benching somebody is a, a relatively, I mean, not drastic. I won't use the word drastic, sure. But, I mean, is it possible that's what he's suggesting as opposed to deciding, oh, your team is not going to be competitive this year? Yeah, well, especially, you know, with score sheets, um, I, I guess uh, origination as kind of a one-year league. I think, you know, there's still sometimes the one-year mentality and, like, Oh my God, I have to win mm-hmm. um, this year. And you know, I, I, I also like. I, I know we were teeing this up, but I, I there's a part of me that definitely feels uh, what Jeff feels and agrees with it. You know, there was an article uh, that came out this week in Baseball Prospectus by former guest Mark Barry, uh, which kind of got into this very same uh, kind of feeling. You know the um, it's just start his team starts six and nine, uh, and then you have that one six week right at the top, and then you know are you 
are you okay with that? Or do you just, you know, panic? And I feel it too. We're in a league where we are, you know, again, SSM, if, if you go all the way out, you know, we have the top SSM in the league. Um, but the team is in last place. And it's last place in a 12-team league. It's nine games out of first. It's, you know, four games out of the playoffs with a million teams in front of us. I don't know. <laughs> you know, you we maybe maybe there's some panicking going on. Maybe there's something drastic that we have to do. Um, you know, I, I think there is tremendous pressure to punt because, you know, one of the other things, Ben, that you talk about is it's, it's good to wait and good, um, that value kind of stays the same, but I think there's also benefit to being the first mover. Is that right? Yeah, I think it's good to be able to set the market for some of this stuff, but a lot of continuing leagues are going to have enough history that you don't get a ton of variability in, say, like what kind of draft pick you're going to get for a good reliever or something like that. And I think it's it's definitely better to be first to market if you feel like you're going to have a little bit of an advantage in terms of leverage with trading partners or something like that. But, you know, there's also situations where you know, if you're the last one in and you've got the last really good player and there are three teams that are in a dogfight for that last playoff spot, then you're in a really good position to trade. So uh, I don't think it's obviously always best to be first in. Um, okay. My personal preference is usually to be first in because I like the feeling of like sort of control or whatever you want to call it in terms of setting, setting the price on some of those types of things. But... Um, that's, I think, more of a personal preference than it is a like general guideline that I think everybody should try to follow. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's interesting. So in terms of like advice for a team that is like ours, let's say eight or nine games out in a league where you thought you were competing or like maybe Jacob was, you hoped you were competing. Um, you know, there's trading there's the supplemental market, but I feel like it's very tough to gain an advantage in a supplemental market. And as you were saying, Jared, I think it benefits a very specific type of team, right? A team whose um, collapse is due not to, let's say, the <laughs> complete failure of their best players, but uh, injuries and or lack of depth, mm. right? Um, if there are one or two holes that are just if the team is just like leaking innings or something like that and you need to paper it over, or you are literally the worst team in the league and you get that one max Muncy bump, mm, right. Uh, which can sometimes happen in the first draft or two. Um, you know, I think it's interesting to think of in terms of one year leagues as well, because there are leagues out there that don't have the luxury of punting and there are, you know, we, we did pledge to talk more about it. So let's say it is a situation like we are in, let's say, in our uh, in our actual league that is pretty close functionally to a one-year league where we are six games out all of a sudden. Um, are there ways that you can think of to kind of help your team midseason if something bad has gone wrong? 
I mean, I think you have to have a sense for what the weakness is on the team, and yeah. and if you're like if your bullpen is the weakness, like that's something that's easy to shore up. If it's you know lack of power or something on offense, well, I guess that doesn't really happen anymore. But if it's um, <laughs> lack of you know lack of depth in the middle infield or something like that, you know, um, or like lack of top end talent in the corners, you know, those things are all going to have different prices and you have to have some other relative strength at least within your team that you can try to deal from to try to address it to make the team you know maybe a little bit more balanced but honestly I think a lot of times in one year leagues you're sort of stuck because unless you get a really good opportunity for a challenge trade that helps you shift you know you've got uh, eight great starting pitchers and you're okay with dealing one or two to you know add another outfield or something like that and there's a team that is in the converse situation you know those types of situations don't happen very often and it, it makes it tough um i think to be able to to pull off something that's going to actually have a meaningful impact on your team's performance that season yeah i think there are two things potentially that i would recommend although i will say like i agree with you that ha- the reason we don't talk about one year leagues as much is that so much of them are decided in March and then through injuries that, you know, if you end up in a hole, it's just incredibly difficult to get out of it. Um, But so two things that I might recommend if you are an active owner and you want to try to change your fate. uh, One is to trade your solid stars for like incredibly risky (laughs) investments and maybe crack your um, crack your lineup a bit if their depth is the problem. Just trade your starter for two people who may have playing time issues, and just hope and pray. You know, I think men, a lot of the time it might go worse, but I think you're just looking for the chance that you know Ryan McMahon grabs the job and runs away with it, or Alex Verdugo somehow becomes a starter, or you know they call up. Um, whoever they i guess all the stars are in the major leagues at this point but <laughs> you know if if somebody if somebody actually gets called up you know look for uh kind of mid-level prospects i don't know i would just start accepting more and more risk into your team um the other strategy that i might suggest is you know just there is one form of time value in a one-year league and that's, you know, you trade your players who are of more use in the playoffs for players who might be of more use in the regular season. So it's really like trading off overperformers for underperformers and just hoping that they bounce back. <laughs> I would say almost no matter how bad they are. But, <laughs> uh, you know, I can think of a major league team that has really tested those outer boundaries recently but um you know i think again like ben was saying earlier because uh because some of that september value is locked in um you know i think if you well if you're a terrible team with christian yelich you have made some mistakes in life but you know I think if there is anybody who has had a hot month of the season, I would just flog them now to a uh, to a contender and get that underperforming player 
and just hope like if you're if you're in last if you're second to last in one year league you know i think you're just looking for things to bounce back your way and you want to get into the playoffs and you can deal with um looking stupid later makes sense all right so any anything else are are we ready to panic I'm glad you said that word because I have a Joe Panic segue digression I want to make. Sure, yes. Uh, um, my I, favorite type of panic is Joe Panic. I just read this book, Infinite Baseball. I'm holding up to the camera, but only you guys can see. Notes <laughs> from a Philosopher at the Ballpark by Alvin No. I okay. don't know that I would recommend it necessarily to anyone in particular. And I think a lot of it went over my head because I don't do philosophy. But... Um, uh, he had a story about Joe Panic in there, and Joe Panic's name was spelled wrong. It was spelled like the word Panic rather than like the last name Joe Panic. Mm-hmm. And this was like multiple times in an index too. But so one, I don't know if maybe it's just a philosophy thing that's going over my head, but why he misspelled it. But two, like it made me think of how hard it has to be to be an editor for a book on philosophy and baseball, and like to get that right, like to be to be someone who could get all the philosophical stuff down but also know how like joe panic is an actual person and not just this construct that this author came up with <laughs> like joe cool but the yeah opposite. like how is how is an editor supposed to know they don't know oh i don't know he could type joe panic into google but like if you don't know that but nothing would come up it would all be the other joe panic hypothetical <laughs> philosophical construct <laughs> this is like the anti-clutch like <laughs> not jeter uh that is funny that's it it's a slim volume like i said i don't know if i'd necessarily recommend it but how did you would... end up reading a philosophy philosophy book about baseball uh my mom got it for me so oh, there you go that'll do it all right <clears throat> she got it for me and she's like yeah, you know what this didn't even get that great reviews but here you go <laughs> Yeah, it sounds right. <laughs> Always the way I like to get a gift. Not, I don't think people appreciate how much your mother loves books and like media in general. But like, it's true. yeah, it's that's a very understand. that's a very quintessential story of your mother. I think it's like <laughs> the only reason that she hasn't left her job yet is because part of her job entails ordering thousands of dollars of books each year, and that's like her favorite thing in the world. And she she takes a lot of crap in order to like just hang on to that basically. All right, whatever brings you joy, I guess. Right? <laughs> um, so I think, other than that topic, where I think we decided it is not time to panic unless it is, uh, <laughs> you know, the the kind of advice we always like to give, um, <laughs> conditional. We are. Um, going to extend our best thing we saw this week topic uh, a little bit because um, just, just some bigger things that we saw this week. I would not say this is the best thing I saw this week, but uh, one thing I saw this week uh, very recently over the weekend was um, the Tampa Bay Rays uh, playing the Boston Red Sox and uh, the Tampa Bay Rays uh I don't know if you uh, heard of this, uh, if you heard from this game, but the Tampa Bay Rays um, set the team record for uh, triples in one game Ooh. with four. Um, and 
it was uh, it was very interesting to me. Um, weird game. Uh, the Rays Rays actually lost six five to the to the Red Sox. Um, but I was struck by this feeling when um, let's see, Jimon Choi hit the first triple in the fourth inning, and uh, Yandy Diaz was up, and I was like, oh, this will be. Um, you know, this will be fun. The The Rays are going to get back in it. And then uh, Yandy Diaz grounded out. And I realized, oh, everyone is right. It doesn't matter what base you are on. <laughs> to, like, it may as well be first base. Yeah, uh, you got all this from Yandy Diaz. Yandy Diaz grounds out, like, a lot. Yeah, well, Yandy Diaz hit another home run. This is all happening for him this year. But yeah, no, I, I realized like, oh, runner on first, because there were actually two instances of this in the um, uh, in the game with a leadoff triple. And both times, like the first player grounded out and then a player was out. And I could just see, you know, the strikeout happening. And I'm like, oh, God, this is. Like, it's been a long time since I've had to calibrate my expectations after a triple watching modern baseball. <laughs> so, um, you know, I feel like uh, it was a real strange thing. And actually, half of them scored. So it was a, in both cases, it was a uh, triple with one out, then a triple scored the run. And then that player was stranded on third. It's weird. Twice. Yeah. I know it was a strange, uh, strange experience, but it kind of just brought to mind. Um, again, we've been talking about this uh, rabbit ball for the past couple of weeks, how the game is changing. And I, I don't know if we've asked like Jared, especially since uh, you watch baseball uh, pretty regular or, you know, like a facsimile thereof. Um, <laughs> do you like this? <laughs> <laughs> not the team like the the concept of like the baseball that we're watching right now well i mean it's putting the o's in a position to set some pretty spectacular records so in that sense sure what record would that be <laughs> most home runs given up by a team in a season ever they said the one for i don't know if you saw this one i think it was in that article the yahoo sports one the o's have given up the most home runs through the end of um, April. Mm-hmm. And so the record through the end of April was 50 and the O's broke that with 10 games to go in the, so it's been a good season. <laughs> it's, yeah. Yeah. The pitching is, is not holding up as well as I thought it would. Um, and I did think they were going to be the worst team in the league <laughs> by a lot. <laughs> so <laughs> Ups and downs. They're hitting better than I thought. They're hitting home runs. Sure. Everyone's like hitting home runs. Yeah. Um, you know, is it... I, I was just curious. Like, aesthetically, are you happy with baseball in the moment? Um, you know, I think one of the things that has happened between last podcast and this is uh, we've seen kind of the Rob Arthur articles uh, on Baseball Prospectus that first the, uh, the coefficient drag is back down, right? So balls are flying everywhere and then uh the triple a ball was replaced mm-hmm. by uh the major league ball i assume most people heard this and then uh home runs are up in triple a by 30 percent 
which as a person who watches a lot of triple a games is a real bummer because like um they already play most of those games on like the moon in the pcl so <laughs> that's just gonna be like a thousand home runs um yeah is this uh you know is a game where jimon Choi, a player not you know should not be hitting a triples does hit a triple it's amazing you know the whole like it was it was great because it was like the first thing that happened to the rays in four innings so everyone was like at the top step and <laughs> cheering him on and you know tropicana field was rocking the dj was like fake playing uh music that's an inside joke sorry <laughs> <laughs> we went to Tropicana Field once. The DJ was like spinning the whole day and nothing was coming out. It was very strange. And we have <laughs> talked about it for a decade since. Um, but it wasn't the whole day. It was just the second through the seventh inning. <laughs> just, just standing there, just like spinning a thing <laughs> and like listening, but no sound was coming out. I don't get it. <laughs> just a, okay. But, you know, so it was like this moment where it's like everyone's excited, but he didn't get home. Uh, you know, it wasn't a home run. And then it was like, oh, that's right. I don't know that anything's going to happen. Like, <laughs> you know, that's not a run necessarily. Or it's like, it wouldn't even be a surprise if it wasn't a run. Right. I think it's less aesthetically pleasing for me personally, if that's your question. Yeah. And, I mean, maybe just because it's different from what I'm used to. And I still think of it in the old terms. But yeah. It's right, is it baseball to go? Right, is it like a kids these days thing? Yeah, like with their hula hoops and their singles, or you know, home runs. Where's the day where you could, you know, drive, knock a runner over? It it's interesting to me because I'm of two minds. Like, you know, I do feel I do feel the inertness a little bit. Like it does feel like there's an aspect of home run or bust that. You know, it's just pervasive. It, it's not just like when it happens. It just like pervades your thinking. It's like, oh, this team has to hit a home run here. You know, which is kind of different even than like, or let's just let them, you know, get on base or, you know, a, a runner's in scoring position. Let's get a single and drive them over. And it's like, well, you can, but that's just like less likely than ever. Um you know, but there's an aspect like the way I watch games too is I don't, I don't know if it's changed if it was the way I always watched it, but you know I find myself much more interested in the batter pitcher interaction hmm. than before, and I think to me that is the thing that has been compensating. That that's kind of what I've been realizing in this world. Like, why am I not completely turned off by baseball? Um, you know, I think I like strikeouts more than most people. And I think I like home runs more than most people. Like, <laughs> I think most people like home runs. But, you know, I I think there's this aspect of um, the part of the game that I most focus on is that, like, interaction. And I've never liked throws to first. I've never really liked, you know, hitting behind the runner and positioning and all that stuff. Like, I don't really enjoy stolen bases as much as most people. I, th I Maybe it's just because I grew up, you know, kind of pre-saberized in the early 90s way, like, uh, or mid-90s way. Like, I, I was a kid when I first discovered sabermetrics. So, like, uh, me and the people younger than me are all, like, we, we never cared about RBIs. 
And winning, <laughs> winning is a function of hitting home runs, son. <laughs> um, you know that. Um, I think. I I do think of myself as being of like a slightly younger generation that way in terms of fandom, like post, um, the you know the right way to play, and I think on some level it has been kind of interesting to see this like being pulled to an end and saying okay it just really narrows down the focus of what a game is because you have the positioning you know i think all the shifting that's going on and it's just not as compelling to me as like you know is this a player like swing changing a player going to the pulse side or just you know i think the types of pitches that are being thrown and you know i think i've spend much more time focusing on the micro than the macro of the game as well. Do you think you would feel similarly if we had more certainty about like the integrity of the baseball like you were talking about before or like the the consistency of some of those things that we had previously assumed were going to be the same? So that you could like for example um <clears throat> chalk all of it up to uh usage pattern changes and like you know, like the way that, uh, sorry, pitching usage, pitcher yeah. usage pattern changes. Uh, you know, like it. Do you think? Do you think it makes sense that that's the big part of it? And how much of the like unknown ball juicing types of things are a problem? Right, because to me, that's like yeah. outside the game in a way. Right, like that's the thing that's like it, that shouldn't. That shouldn't change, right? Baseball shouldn't be making those tweaks without, um, like, having a good reason or, like, having a little bit of transparency about it. But the, like, strategic shifts for, like, defensive repositioning or uh, only having pitchers face, you know, a batter or two, like, those things are more like, well, if that's the way that the manager thinks is best to run the team, then, you know, that's their prerogative. Does that make a difference for you in terms of, like, how you how much you enjoy what's going on and whether like the changes are things that you can feel good about watching or like still are entertained by. Yeah. It's interesting. Like the thing, the changes over the years that have really upset me or, you know, not like relatively obsessed me. Yeah, exactly. We, we all understand those table stakes here. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, you know, I think losing the power of the starting pitcher, has been upsetting to me. I understand it aesthetically. I do think probably the best rotation is just like three guys going one time through the order. I think eventually that's what baseball will be. Um, but you know, not to I, always I, bring it back to the Orioles, but tonight was the first uh, Orioles starter who lasted seven innings in a game. Okay, oh, partially that's on the Orioles, but yeah. Who was it? Um, Andrew Kashner. Wow. All right. Wasn't he the opening day starter? Yeah. <laughs> well, you do want your teammates to really soak up some innings for you. It's... He's leading by example. Yeah. That's fair. Uh, no, I think I feel like that has been a problem. I feel like um, some of the inertness of like the lack of substitutions I find much more upsetting. You know, I think in especially American League games, you'll go the entire game. And no, there's no batter substitution, no pitch hitting. Pitch hitting is probably a losing strategy. But there's no, like, 
optimization, like somebody is coming in, like this changes everything. Heaven it's forbid. Like, yeah, it's just like, you know, a pitcher throws three innings and then they bring in another pitcher who throws three innings and then they bring in another pitcher who throws three innings and then it's done. Um, for a, so I, I feel like that's the part that is uh, a little alienating to me. Like the moment-to-moment thing, the actual ball itself, um, I'm mostly okay with. I feel like if the alternative is just 1968... I would rather have this. You know, I don't know what would happen if the ball was deadened. Like, would people... Would the sinker come back? I don't know. Would, like, one-run strategies come back? It doesn't feel like one-run strategies are going to come back if the ball is deadened. It feels like they were always losing strategies. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, you'd have to make bigger changes to the game in order to make that acceptable. I think you would just have a game where no one scored ever <laughs> which may have its own charms but I don't know um, you know uh, Jared I don't know how you feel about that I don't want to keep monologuing because you are also watching games pretty regularly yeah. what are you trying to say I, I'm saying, Ben, that you don't watch games all that regularly, and this is all the same to you what? as an intellectual exercise. I don't watch baseball games all that regularly. <laughs> That's fair. Well, let me ask Ben, because um, you grew up among the three of us playing baseball yeah. the most in an organized manner. Yeah. And I was so reflecting some... on that when Ian was talking about like how he was raised on sabermetrics, actually. Yeah, you were raised on actually playing the game yeah. and getting outside and seeing the sun. Well, and, like, all that stupid traditionalist shit, like, hitting behind the runner and all the other things that you said. Like, you, you were saying that, and, of course, it's a podcast, but I was sitting here, like, nodding along, like, yep, I remember being taught that, and I remember being taught that. And I, you know, it's like... Oh, yeah, like, doing little thing, and, like, you get the ice cream cone when you're six, and then you get the slap on the back when you're 14 or something. I guess. I don't... Yeah. I don't reflect on that as much as, like, the actual on-the-field stuff that you were talking about. Yeah. But, like, I remember very vividly my high school coach telling me, like, you should swing at the first fastball you see. Like, that's, like, that's our hitting approach, is, like, hit the first fastball you can. Hmm. Uh, and, you know, I learned a long time ago that that's a kind of terrible approach. But uh, I was also never a great hitter, so it didn't it didn't matter for me personally. Yeah. No Sorry. Landon Powell, I heard. <laughs> uh, you, you have to at least explain that a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> no, he was in the, he was in your area, right? Yeah, I played on the Junior Legion team when he was on the Senior Legion team. So I like knew him, and his dad coached the Junior Legion team, and his dad was a good old boy. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> hopefully, yeah, hopefully I said that with the appropriate intonation that everybody understands how I feel about that. Um, slight dramatic pause there. I was really worried about what was going to come out of your mouth. <laughs> I mean, I was trying to figure out what's like what's the right word to describe. We were like this a man. second from getting pulled from iTunes. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that bad. Uh, Jared, what were you actually going to ask? Because I sort of interrupted you as you were framing your question. And then I interrupted you as you were answering it. Um, so, that's why we make good podcasts. <laughs> no, I just think that it's like Ian was saying he doesn't care as much about the 
not station to station kind of approach, but like it's fine if the game is just entirely strikeouts and homers. And I was just wondering if you had a different sentiment. I realize you don't hew that close to the traditionalist yeah. point of view, but yeah. like if you you know growing being brought up in word, that's what you were doing, and there was more emphasis on the moving the runners around. If if that's something that you would miss, um, it's hard because I've. I've not been enamored by baseball in so long. You know, like, I don't even remember what it is that... I guess I remember some of what it was that, like, drew me in. But it's not something that I appreciate like I once did. So I don't have, like, a a good answer for you in the present. I do think that one of the things that I remember feeling is that baseball was one of those things that if you didn't play it, I always understood why people didn't like watching it on TV. Because there aren't enough opportunities watching it on TV to appreciate some of the little things that happen, like the middle infielders talking to each other, like in between pitches, or the coaches from the dugout, like giving hand signals to the catcher or to the outfielders or whatever. You know, like there's all kinds of little things that you can see like that if you're at the game in person or if. You know, like, sometimes they show it on broadcast and stuff. But, you know, generally, especially for people that aren't baseball players or haven't been watching baseball games with baseball players, when they watch baseball games on TV, it's like, oh, this is not as exciting as, you know, basketball or whatever because the action is a little bit less frequent and it's harder to appreciate those, like, nuanced things. I guess I don't know if those nuanced things are still present or not. You know, like just because yeah. just because the outcomes on the field are different doesn't necessarily mean that um, the left fielder isn't still trying to be in the best position that they can be in. It just means that the number of situations where it matters what position they're in are lower. Uh, and is that better or worse? Like, I, I don't know. You know, like... It, you could still see value. In fact, it might be even like enhanced value in, you know, that coach having a sense for where that left fielder should be. Um, And, you know, when that one opportunity comes and that left fielder is able to get to a ball that's, you know, in the gap or in the corner or whatever, because of that positioning, like, I think that's interesting, you know, and all that still happens, right? If, if anything, we've gotten better at that with all of the, uh, defensive metrics and spray charts and stat cast and everything that's happened over the last 20 years or whatever. So I don't know. I don't, I don't think it changes too much. <clears throat> I also think as a fan, like I, I like high scoring games enough, you know, like I think generally that means more stuff is happening and the stuff that is happening is more likely to be exciting. And I think those are good things. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think, especially from our generation, like the generation before us had this reverie for one nothing pitching duels, right? That was like the game that they grew up in, and you know, the two to one games. And I don't know, that never really, I I like them as a, as a spice, but not as the flavor. Okay. (laughs) That's fair. That's a funny way to describe it. (laughs) Yeah, I think yeah. I like I think I like my flavor being like lots of two run home runs. Yeah. Yeah, there's a part of me that like really did come of age in nineteen ninety eight as much as I Yeah, you know, don't want to say it's like 
I, I I do like the giant offense ball to some degree. I mean, that's also how I prefer to build fantasy teams. It's not like <laughs> <laughs> we have like a sort of a running joke about uh, the Kings team because you know the only way they're going to win is if they score a bazillion runs because um, there's only one pitcher. But uh, even going back to when before we started teaming up, I think I mentioned this on the pod before, but like. Before we teamed up to run teams, I ran a team by myself in a league where uh, you guys ran a team together, and like my whole team was basically predicated on just having the best possible offense. Like I didn't even care how good the pitching was. It's like, well, I will roster some pitchers and try to avoid like AAA pitcher, but I'm gonna draft like my first ten draft picks are all gonna be hitters, uh, and I loved that team. I had like peak Albert Pujols and uh Evan Longoria and Joe Mauer and I don't know. Yeah. I just remember it very fondly. It's, it's, like, it's interesting. Yeah. Like well first first Ben just to correct uh the record. Uh Carlos Martinez is activated today. We have two pitchers on our team. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> so uh look out uh Kings League, we're coming for you. Um Did you guys see the dig that Nate put at us uh in his like email telling like reminding people about the supplemental. Yeah, Nate thinks that we uh, Nate uh, Nate Stevens, former guest, thinks that we might, in fact, be intentionally losing. <laughs> uh, or at least our one, like our team is bad by design. Our, our one in twenty one team may be in the tank. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I I can neither confirm nor deny. Right, it's not like we've gone on. We record. play to win each game. We tell our boys to go out there and try their hardest. <laughs> <laughs> like uh, pitcher Triple A has gone out there and given it his all, damn it! Yes. <laughs> game after game, he several is, times he is there and ready to go. Um, I, hang on, I have one thing about that. I'm glad that we finally got beyond the like uh, discussions about tanking, where like the implication was that the players weren't trying. It's like no, no. Everybody realizes now it's not the players that aren't trying; it's the management. <laughs> it's like uh, every player that ever goes on the field is competitive and is always going to try to win, and that's fine. That's why you put terrible players on the field <laughs> if you don't want to win. Uh, sorry. No, that's fine. Um, you yeah. clearly haven't seen Major League. <laughs> so you mean it's the ownership? <laughs> she wants to move her team to. Is it Las Vegas? Where it's been a is? very long time since I watched yeah. uh, Major League Miami. I, this is a thing Google and you know people are yelling at us. Assume, if we assuming we had listeners who haven't turned this off in protest yet, big assumption. But um, we turned off in protest. Why would they start no, protesting no now? Point. That's. <laughs> the point I'm trying to make is they tried to field intentionally terrible players, but they ended up winning. Sure, because the players. Wanted to win. Oh my god, so many. The will to um, win. He just knows how to win. Yeah, you fucking score more than the other team. <laughs> god damn. <laughs> it's the dumbest shit in the world. Sorry. Yeah, so uh, we, are, we are also caught between two planes here. You know, I think we're a little disturbed by uh, the changes in offense and the slowing of the game. But we are also child, children of the '90s, and uh, we take the long ball. Yeah. So um, you know, a lot. We will be monitoring that going forward as well. 
as uh, <laughs> eventually singles are removed from the game entirely, and we just watch Homer and Derby. The platonic ideal. I think the Orioles are well set up for that. <laughs> for that event with, with 23 first basemen on their roster. Didn't this all start with you saying we were going to extend the best things we saw segment? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the best thing I saw this week... <laughs> no, I mean... Okay, yeah, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, that was a baseball game. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, so the best thing I saw this week uh, was uh, the launch of... Um, non-fact of baseball game, the launch of uh, Imperator Rome, uh, which people either are cheering for or going... Eh? Uh, including here. Um, for those who do not know, uh, Imperator Rome is a game from uh, Paradox Studios, the developers who uh, created such games as Crusader Kings 2, Europa Universalis 4, Stellaris, and others. Essentially, these are giant uh, paint-the-world war games slash uh, uh, development builders if you have played Civilization uh, you would be somewhat familiar with the concept. Um, and this one is set in the Roman era. Um, so uh, I watched it. Jared, who is also a fan of these games uh, and these type of games, watched it uh, preview. Um, and uh, Jared, what did you think? I'm super of- excited. I need to buy it right now. I'm <laughs> really, I need to be playing. I want to stop talking to you guys and just start playing this game. Yeah, I believe it is out this week. Um, oh, or if not soon, the embargo is lifted. Um, it is um, it is a delight. What makes uh, what makes these games compelling to you? So uh, I don't know which one is your favorite. Actually, are you? That's a good question. I mean, probably Europa Universalis. I'd say. Okay. But it depends. It's usually just whichever one I played most recently. Uh, um. Yeah, so their so their grand strategy games is is sort of what they're described as, which means there's all sorts of interlocking systems that you have to manage. It's it's basically, at its core, it's just like a super big spreadsheet with lots of buttons and knobs that you're twiddling. Um, so I like that. I don't know if you're going for the sandbox aspect of it. For me, that's actually one of the things that's hardest for me to get into the sandbox mm-hmm. aspect. Um, it's one of the cool things about the game, but I'm someone who tends to like to be a little bit more directed in these sorts of games. So it takes a while for me to adjust to that. So for me, it's just cool seeing how all the different um, systems interact with each other. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, th- I do feel like, you know, I, I do feel like this is not so far afield from simulated baseball or even real baseball. It like a combination of interlocking systems, I think is the thing that is compelling to both of us. Uh, I think what I like most is uh, the narrative where your crazy uh, king, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, sends your rival to the oubliette <laughs> and conquers another country and then all of a sudden is stricken with smallpox for his sins, which is why I'm a kind of Crusader Kings 2 fan at heart. The, well, uh, you just like marrying different people. Yeah, exactly. Um so for me, it is always the combination of moving things on the spreadsheet and a bunch of narrative stories about a bunch of random people, which is exactly <laughs> what I like about baseball. As well. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing way too much about like 700 to 900 people, some of whom may be fictional. 
<laughs> at any one time. Um, say, this also sounds like everything I've ever heard you guys talk about pop culture. So, <laughs> yes, yes, very much. So. <laughs> um, but you know, I think I think it's interesting because one of the things that uh, is compelling to me most about the paradox type gains is um, their use of. Uh, well, like you said, interlocking systems, and they have a lot of levers. Um, and, you know, I feel like, as you were saying earlier, I think in the panic section even, it's it's tough to find a lot of decision points in score sheet, which I think is, to some degree, a benefit. It means you can run more teams at once. It means you can have a more casual game in season. Um, but I do feel like something of that is missing from the game, is... is would you agree? Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's something we've talked about this year, just in general. I think yeah. I think that definitely depends on the context that you're coming from, right? Because like if you're coming from Roto or something like that, then score sheet feels like there's a lot of levers to pull. In some ways, I think Roto's waiver wire uh, allows yeah. for compulsion a, a little bit more. That kind of day to day. Yeah, it's um roster machinations but i guess my impression of what you were talking about in terms of lovers was more like in-game strategy or uh i guess like big picture roster changes trades and stuff like that yeah i think to me i feel like my ideal game marries the two yeah that's just reality or outside the park i guess out of the park right and then is impacted by the current year which out of the park is not. So uh, the exi- my ideal game does not exist on the market right now, I would say. Not yet. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, because just watching that, I was like, oh, this is just fun to me, uh, this type of game. And, you know, I, I don't know where I would start. in Somewhere in Greece? I, I, I don't know. I did like, we, we watched, a, we both watched a start in Crete, I feel like Crete was a great place to spend your 400s AD. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's a stereotypical kind of um, Europe or Universalis starting point, just like an isolated place where you can take over. Is that like starting risk in Australia? It is. Yeah. Like starting risk it's in like Australia. That. And I guess, yeah, just to, to clarify one point I made earlier, not that we need to get too deep into Paradox Interactive games, but... They, these games, they tends not to be a, say, specific winning condition. Right. Um, like how in Civ, there's, uh, nowadays, there's you know, six or seven different ways you can win. In, in this game, you don't really win so much as you get to start wherever you want in sort of whatever province you want, and you can sort of make your goal whatever you want it to be. Um, which, like I said, that's what took me a little bit to get into it, but mm-hmm. it's kind of an interesting approach to a game. Same, you know, it, it, it is, it, it does feel like something when I enjoy it, it is more in the vein of baseball, like a thing that watches over me without a like specific goal in mind, uh, possibly cause I don't have a team that I root for more or less. So I mm. just kind of, you know, it is, I do kind of watch baseball as like an observation world builder kind of scenario in general <laughs> that I have very little impact on. I guess, Jared, you have more of a rooting interest. It also <laughs> doesn't really result in, like... <laughs> you set your own goals in baseball, <laughs> too, is what I'm saying. That's fair. 
Is that just to keep from going crazy? Yeah. Um, but very compelling. Uh, I certainly recommend uh, at least watching... Um, if, if this at all intrigues you, um, you can watch uh, the Crete opening um, or uh, search for many a true nerd um, uh, Imper- Imperador Rome on YouTube. Uh, I highly recommend that as a uh, intro to the game um, and to uh, give it a try uh, and maybe buy it for us. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> We're uh, not gonna ben, start a I, we're not gonna yeah. start a Patreon, but we'll start a GoFundMe for Ian to have new video games. Ben, as a as a consumer of video games, uh, but not games like these, I think that's fair to say, right? Uh, sure. I'm yeah. I'm interested by games like this. I just feel like it's like I would play this game to play with you guys, probably sure. more than anything else. So, and I I don't know. I've told Jared a few times, like I'm willing to get into it. It sounds like there's definitely a learning curve, though. So it's like, uh, you know, oh, I read geez. like. I, I should clarify. Wikipedia I do not games. know how to play any of these games. I do play though. I just don't know how, because there are so many systems. And yeah. It... The learning curve to play it well is staggering. I might struggle As someone with someone who has not advanced up that curve at all. It's. <laughs> I mean, like you can read on these forums of people like talking like how many hundreds of hours you have to play before you have like a basic grasp of what you're doing interesting that might be difficult but (laughs) yeah yeah that sounds interesting it sounds like it's like the sims on super steroids yeah with uh with a few more like uh chivalric knights Mm. (laughs) (laughs) more death slightly more incest uh Depending on how you want to play, I guess. <laughs> That's weird. I don't... Okay. Yeah. It it it, it definitely um, you definitely have to set up your own value system <laughs> and uh, arrange it to the Middle Ages or um, you know I guess in this case feudal uh, or uh, you know Republic of Rome and uh, the Republic of Greece because uh, certainly. Um, I would say some of the uh, some of the actions that you take are not ideal for 2019. Hashtag problematic. Oh dear. I know. I would probably struggle with that. Yep. Okay. <laughs> Great. But you don't have to. You just have to pay the cost. So you can you can set the society you want. Hmm. So you know there there is something interesting to that as well. Um, meanwhile, uh, while we were building society, uh, Ben, you also had a best thing that you saw this week, right? Yeah. Uh, I went and saw Hamilton in Detroit because that's the place that you go if you live in suburban Michigan to see Hamilton. Um, I went with my wife and her parents. It was, it was great. I don't, um, I don't go to the theater a ton. I probably am like on the low end of the spectrum in terms of people that appreciate uh, live theater. Uh, I guess we could get into why that probably is if we wanted to, but irrelevant. Um, I really enjoyed it. And I think for me, it was especially gratifying because when Hamilton first burst on the scene and was, you know, super popular, I was, 
uh, coaching college ultimate frisbee, and a bunch of the players on the team were super into Hamilton. So I had heard the whole soundtrack and a few of the songs a good several dozen times before I ever wanted to. Uh, and so there are like some things that I was familiar with, um, but it was so much different seeing it in person, mm-hmm. of course, you know, it's like, I don't think I appreciated going into it how much more, uh, immersive and entertaining and, um, you know, just awesome. How much more awesome it would be to, to experience it in person. So it was great. Uh, so I encourage everybody to go. I also was thinking about this in terms of like, uh, my daughter, because now this is how I think of almost everything. It's like everything is reframed through this. And I don't know if you remember, Jared, but when we were in grade school, I think we went and saw Les Mis. Do you remember going to see Les Mis? I do not. Where um, did we see it? Um, like Kennedy Center? Yeah, maybe. I don't remember where it was, to be honest. And, huh. it, and it could have been that it could have been that it wasn't um, when we were in school together. But I have this like lasting memory of seeing Les Mis in grade school. Uh, and to me, that marked Les Mis as like the musical, you know, like, mm-hmm. especially as like a kid that wasn't into musical theater. Um, Les Mis was like the be all end all for musicals because it was the one that I most vividly remembered seeing in person that was like the most impressive when I saw it. Uh, the one whose like songs I actually still know a little bit of, despite, you know, basically never going out of my way to listen to Les Mis uh, songs. And I figure Hamilton has to be that for, like, our kids' generation, right? Like, like it seems mm-hmm. like it's going to be not just a, a short-term sort of thing, right? It's going to be, like, an enduring thing. That's my sense yeah. of it. I don't know. Right, I think the same way Rent was, but even more durable, let's say. Sure. As well. I guess uh, I will have to defer to you, because I don't know anything about Rent. So. They're not going to pay it. That's <laughs> <laughs> like, Benny's a hero. Screw Mark. All right, sorry. Getting all my Rent hot takes out. Um, yeah, I saw... Uh, I, I I know what you mean. I, I saw, and I think I, I actually mentioned this on the podcast once, so I, I will not tell the story to bore any long-time listeners, but um, I saw Hamilton um, relatively early on, which is a benefit of being in New York and interested in theater. Uh, you know, I, I missed it in the public theater, unfortunately, um, but I did I did get to see it with the original cast, which was very fortunate, and I also got to see it cold. Uh, without having heard any of the songs. Mm. Um, How familiar were you with, like, the personal history of Alexander Hamilton? $10 bill. Dual. Broad strokes. Okay. Going in. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think I know... I, I probably knew a little bit more than average just based on, you know, me being interested in history, but I had not okay. read the biography, and I was not. Okay. Um I was I was not super into that, um, and I, I had also seen In the Heights, and so I, you know, I I knew of Lin Manuel Miranda. I did like uh, In the Heights, but I, I wasn't over the moon about it. Um, and you know, I, I saw it at the point where it was already like massively hyped, mm. um, but 
I think before it hit the culture in that same way. And, you know, walking in like, I don't know. There's a little bit where there's so much expectation on something and you're like, mm-hmm. okay, impress me show. Yeah. Um, and then I went there and I saw it and it was like magical. It was transcendent. And I remember there was a point at which like, I just like tears came to my eye. Like I couldn't believe I like something this beautiful existed in the world. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I will tell you exactly. It is when um, it is when the uh, Skylar sisters are out there singing about New York, and I'm like, "Oh, this is this mm. is amazing. This is like legitimately." Um, that was not when I would have guessed that tears came to your eyes, but no, it, it was. Uh, it, well, it's always about how amazing New York is. Uh, but, <laughs> My bad. <laughs> but no, it's that combination of like. Uh, you know, I think uh, Beyonce and U.S. history just really did it for me. Because, um, you know, it was just a version of America that felt like it included me. You know, and I, I say, like, not a, obviously, um, not a person of color, but, you know, my grandparents came over on a boat not too long ago. You know, it, it, the stories of America, like, I'm pretty late in the game on that. And, you know, I feel like there are a lot of people in America who don't, like, super appreciate me being here <laughs> and uh, don't see it, you know, don't see that as, like, and the things I value as being important. And sometimes it's hard to feel, you know, it's hard to feel like an American when the phrase American is tied up with so many things that are, um, you know, that feel intentionally designed to alienate you and to have a true American story, um, and experience that, uh, helps me understand. It it, it really was like, I would say the most American I have ever felt. Um, hmm. In that moment, and it's um, interesting. Yeah, it didn't. I th- it didn't strike me in a patriotic way, but I think that's probably my own personal shortcoming. Like I don't. I think it's just like a difference in the way that I think of my patriotism or whatever. I don't know. Whatever, <laughs> however you want to describe that. Maybe patriotism is even the wrong word. <clears throat> anyway that's yeah interesting. yeah and you know i think like time dulls the impact of even the greatest of musicals sure uh like you know i think les mis was incredibly powerful when it came out and um and the, i would say les mis still holds some power but you know eventually everything feels like carousel <laughs> or <laughs> You know that, uh, and I I feel that happening to Hamilton too. Like these songs are becoming standards, and you, you know I I feel like on some level it will not have the immediacy mm. uh, that it does, it, or like Rent, which feels like a museum piece at this point. Um, I I wasn't such a fan contemporaneously, but like it it, it struggles to hold up. Um, but you know I think on some level just. I don't know that it will impact other people the way it did me then. Um, 
but like you said, I think it's going to have a tremendous, um, just this tremendous like cultural dominance. I think it yeah. will be the story of the aughts. Um, and, you know, they, some like weaving an American tale. Eventually the movie will come out in a decade and, um, you know, substitute teachers will put it on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the same way I watched 1776, the musical, which was, <laughs> by the way, pretty great. <laughs> um, I funny. highly recommend uh, 1776. It is wacky. Um, there, and there, there is a 1776 call out, by the way, in, uh, in Hamilton. Yeah. So really, yeah, it's a combination of like musical theater uh, modern hip hop and like uh, improv uh, and <laughs> was really like placed just right at the core of my being. So I, I did appreciate that. Uh, but yeah, again, like saying go to Hamilton is almost tautological. Like everyone knows that, but it really is a special thing. Like if you are in the position where you can consider it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I agree. Uh, I still haven't seen it. Yeah, I'm a terrible person. I apologize. Um, have you have you heard any of the soundtrack? I have actually avoided it for the most part. I mean, I'm not going to say I've never heard any bit of Hamilton. Right. That's not true, but I mean, partially intentionally, so I haven't listened to it. Right, I agree. Um, y- you know, it's it's interesting. Like uh, the soundtrack was definitely released in order to get the musical in front of everybody. So I think, uh, you know, very intentionally, it is a sung opera the same way um, Les Mis is in order to um, be understandable end to end. So it, it's like a complete experience that way. But yeah, I am personally happy that I did not see it. But I think, Ben, like you said, I think you can have experienced it and then see it and it still feels different, right? Well, yeah, and I guess maybe this is just me and again i'm fully willing to accept that i experience musical theater much different than others but i don't think i got the meaning from listening to the soundtrack in any way the same like magnitude as i did from like seeing the performance yeah i i i would say the same thing you know having watched it or like the other order um uh, they they stand alone, but yeah, I do. Um, Jerry, I hope it comes to DC at some point. Oh, it has. I, I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> I <know>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly you know, um, it, it ain't cheap, uh, probably anywhere, and it's definitely a decision that you have to make. But I I, I do also concur. It's pretty pretty great. Uh, Jared, what musical do you recommend instead? Guys and Dolls. Guys and Dolls. Yeah, that's pretty solid too. I love Guys and Dolls so much. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I, I don't know. I haven't. Uh, part of it was the price. Part of it, it's just been so hyped that, like, I don't want to. I feel like if I saw it now, I would not like it, and I don't want to do that. Yeah. So it, I don't know how to mitigate that, but it's very, it's very, very tricky. Because, um, like, it. it I think it was one of the things that actually stood up to it for me, but the hype at this point is so it's so tough that uh, I, I don't know that anything can withstand that. Yeah. But, um, you know, if, if 
if you are in the right frame of mind. I don't know. At some point, um, I do. I do recommend seeing it on the sooner side. Just again, like to with the power of the moment, mm-hmm. just dissipates over time. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I think those concerns or whatever that you were describing aren't going to get better as time passes. So, I don't yeah, know. like like your hesitation is only going to grow. It's like, well, I guess yeah, it's no. okay to say you're never going to see it if that's. I mean, I, I want to see it, but I also don't want to spend like two hundred dollars to go in being like, "Oh, I'm just not going to like this because it's not as good as I want it to be." Uh. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. My thoughts about that are too lengthy to <laughs> continue to talk about. <laughs> see you next week and report back. Um, <laughs> we'll do. All right. So, Jared, uh, what is the best thing you saw this week? Oh man, uh, or we can best thing all three of us saw for eight this week. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> yes so we uh, uh, it's Passover we did our seders and um, Passover is my least favorite and most favorite holiday I think least favorite because I can't eat anything I like all the stuff I like to eat you can't eat on Passover it's awful and I hate it but the seders are always a lot of fun and in particular our seders because my brothers and I have edited our Haggadah um, so it's the blend of things that we like in a Haggadah um, so it starts off with a song to the theme of the Muppet Show. And um, my dad has introduced finger puppets into a couple parts of the <laughs> thing. So, I mean, we get like the good it's parts of the story, nice get all the ridiculous parts. But yeah, it's like, it's a fun time. A this nice year, thing. this year we um, we actually wandered around the desert. For, so like we got up out of the table and wandered around our house like we were watering the desert. So it was fun. It was a good time. I always like satyrs. Uh, I like that you LARP your Seder. <laughs> <laughs> we just introduced it this year, and I highly recommend it. Okay. Anyway, yeah. I also really like it because um, usually our Seders are pretty – I like big Seders, and we usually invite lots of like non-Jewish people and you know, just sort of share it with them. This year, you know, for the you know, family stuff, we just kept it – we kept it really small, which was fine. But it was nice just to have everyone together. Anyway, um, the the other best part of the Seder is the food. Because um, my mom usually cooks really good food, and and even though Passover is awful, the the food she makes the first couple nights are good. But uh, this year, um, we were blessed to add some uh, brisket, courtesy of Ben. So thank you, Ben, who sent us brisket from Franklin You're in welcome. Austin. And uh, we've all been there in person, but I think we can all attest that frozen yeah. and then reheated Franklin holds up. Yeah, I was going to say, like, it's surprisingly close to what it's like having it at the restaurant, right? Like, mm-hmm. like when I first heard of this, so this is the second time I've partaken of the uh, cooked and then vacuum sealed and then recooked uh, or reheated, I guess, uh, brisket. And, like, the first time I was like, uh, it's so good that, like, even if it weren't as good, it would still be worth it, but... It was better than I was expecting. Uh, I don't know. Was that your experience too, Jared? Yeah, no, I agree completely. And so brisket is something that my family takes very seriously. It has driven us apart. My mom, a couple years ago, made two different kinds of brisket. And I liked one. My brothers liked the other version. And like, this is something that comes up many times over the course of the year about how I like the wrong brisket. Like, it's a brisket is a serious thing in my family. We, we so, um, we had it the first night and there were zero complaints about the brisket, which is just something that does not happen in my family. We complain about everything. Uh, 
So I, I don't know how it happened, but yes, everyone, everyone liked it. And I agree. It held up really well. I was super worried and it was really tasty. Good. Yeah. There's an aspect to it, which is like Hamilton, which oh, is boy. that when we all went to Franklin barbecue, it, uh, if you have not heard of it, um, you know, you can Google it. If you have heard of it, you probably heard of the massive hype behind it. And you're like, oh, this thing cannot possibly stand mm-hmm. up mm-hmm. to this level of hype. Mm-hmm. Like everyone telling you, oh, this is the best thing ever. And you're like, okay, well, prove it. Yeah. And then when you go to these things that are massively hyped and they turn out to actually be the best thing ever. Yeah. It's like, like actually exceed your expectations somehow. It's like magic. <laughs> you're like, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And, like, uh, you know, at least the way Jared and I experienced it, we were on a road trip through Texas, and we had spent the week, I won't say, like, exclusively, but massively eating brisket. Uh, Each one, you know, better and better, honestly. Like, uh, we're East Coast kids. This was all the best brisket in our lives, I think, right? Yeah, I mean, mom's brisket aside. Right, exactly. <laughs> of course, yeah, naturally. <laughs> but yeah, like with, without question. And then you know, you're like, well, how much better can this be? Like, why are people waiting six and a half hours for this brisket? And then you go, and you're like, oh, because it's so much better than <laughs> everything else. Which until today, I thought was like mind blowing. Yeah, I think it's because I like food more than I like musical theater. But Franklin's was definitely. <laughs> <laughs> a bigger deal for me than Hamilton. It was like, and the way that I first experienced Franklin's was like, you're going to get up freaking early on a Saturday because your buddy wants to do this thing. And if we're being honest, the buddy that we're doing it for is not known for having great ideas about stuff. So I was like very skeptical and it turned out awesome. And I was like, wow, that was even better than I expected it would be. Uh, which I yeah. guess was true for Hamilton too, but I really like that parallel. It's a fun parallel. <laughs> like... Yeah, and by the way, if you are ever going to Austin uh, and you are a meat eater, if you if you're a vegetarian, I am so sorry. Uh, <laughs> there's there's nothing for you. Uh, but if you if you are a meat eater, uh, my my one Franklin barbecue hack, which is a little easier than it used to be, uh, just order online. Yeah, you will spend too much. You will get too much back. You can bring it back with you in a, um, you know, on the plane. But um, even spending too much on brisket is not a ridiculous price for, let's say, a nice meal anywhere else. And you just get to skip the line. I I generally agree with that. But I do think that there's something to the line experience. And if you listen to, I don't know what podcast that was. You sent us a podcast link to... Um, Aaron Franklin actually talking about this with David Chang. Yeah. Yeah. He talks about it, but you know, part of, part of what he's about is the like experience of being there and like the waiting in line and being with the other people that are waiting in line. And that, that shared experience aspect to it is definitely part of what he's about. So I guess if you do order online, try to go early enough that there's still going to be people like outside waiting and uh, maybe yeah, just right. imagine what that is like. <laughs> yeah, what I'm about is life hacks. <laughs> well, and so I mean, I but, totally agree with you that generally yeah. it's a better use of your time to order online. Like, that's yeah. what I did this time. Uh, but 
I didn't even personally go and pick it up. <laughs> I had I had help fortunately from somebody that was willing to go and pick it up for me. So I didn't I'm very much a hypocrite in this regard, but uh I think that like part of the experience is the being there, so But yeah, if you oh, that's fair. Yeah. if you can have brisket, um I think all three of us would highly recommend yeah. touring to Austin and doing this once in your life, making a pilgrimage. Um yeah. All right. Anything else? Did we cover everything? I hope so. A lot so. of baseball talk this week. <laughs> <laughs> uh, be sure to join us again next week or in two weeks for whatever this is. Uh, <laughs> score sheet plus. We didn't. We we told you. We told you this was going to go this way. Yeah. Uh, and it has. Um, <laughs> email us your thoughts or questions about your score sheet team, Hamilton, and or life. At scoresheet at baseballperspectus.com. We would love to hear from you. We'll definitely uh, talk more about baseball if we get more questions. Yeah. Oh, boy. That's a, either a threat or a promise. <laughs> Can't it be both? <laughs> <laughs> that's very true. Why not both? All right. On that note, on behalf of Ben Murphy and Jared Weiss, I am Ian Lefkowitz. Thanks again, and have a great day.